This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. Thanks for listening, and I'm delighted to be part of your journey towards product mastery. Today, we're talking about radical product thinking, which is a mindset and a process for innovating smarter. Our guest is Radhika Dutt, and she's going to help us understand radical product thinking. She's an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in four acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. She has built products in industries including broadcasting, media, advertising technology, government, consumer, robotics, and wine. And I love that breadth of perspective. It's a reminder that as product managers and product innovators, we can go many different places because we understand our, the processes for innovation. She also teaches entrepreneurship and innovation at Northeastern University. University. She has co-founded the Radical Product Thinking Group, which is a movement of leaders creating vision-driven change, along with authoring the book titled Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. And as a reminder, if you want a detailed written summary of all of our discussion, including a one-page takeaway of specific insights that help you put them into practice right now, get the most value out of our discussion, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 367. Radhika, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Chad. Great to be here. So you have been at a few conferences lately that I've come across your work and also very much appreciate your book. I'm curious about just kind of your path, though, right, um, into entrepreneurship and product leadership. I don't know where this started and maybe a, a significant moment along the way that kind of told you this is what you should be doing. Um, can you share that story with us? For me, the path to product leadership has been through entrepreneurship and really product diseases above all. What I realized, you know, was despite uh, the industry that I was in or size of company, I kept seeing the same just pattern of product diseases over and over. Uh, And I'll give you an example. You know, when I started out, the first company that I founded, this was, you know, while we were still in our dorm rooms at MIT, the first found startup we founded was Lobby 7. And we ran into the product disease I now call hero syndrome. Hero syndrome is basically what happens when, you know, we get so focused on being big and scaling. uh, And we're so focused on being big that we really forget about what is the problem we're really setting out to solve. Mm. And the example of this hero syndrome that we encountered then, right, was our vision even was this big vision of revolutionizing wireless. This was back in 2000. And you know, we we kept trying one idea after another to see what worked in the market. And the, those same exact ideas that, you know, you try different things to see what works is exactly how we build products today. And it leads to so many product diseases. And so this hero syndrome was the product disease that, you know, I had back in 2000. But then I kept seeing these same sets of product diseases like pivotite, obsessive sales disorder. Even as I say these names, I know that product managers out there are saying, oh, yes, I've seen this, right? And the final straw came for me in about 2017, where I learned from these product diseases and developed an intuition after really hard lessons. And I kept seeing other organizations kind of learning those hard lessons over again. And so I kept wondering, well, is it that we're all just doomed to learning these hard lessons until we figure this out and having to do this, you know, by ourselves? Or can 
this intuition be shared with people? You know, can we all learn to build better products and avoid these product diseases? And that was really what uh, started radical product thinking. It was that burning question. And so uh, myself and two ex-colleagues, we built a framework to say, well, how can we translate this intuition into a set of steps that really helps us build world-changing products systematically? And we started trying this framework out with people. And soon, you know, from that framework emerged the book because people said, well, you know, can you give me examples of how you actually use this? Can you give me this framework filled out? And that's what led to my saying, okay, I think we need a book finally. Excellent. So I love the path to the book and the path to your framework. It's funny to me as you just share the names, like I've never heard the excessive sales disorder, right? These different different phrases, the hero syndrome in this context. But as product people, we immediately know what you're talking about, right? It's like, like we encounter these diseases. And I know a lot of people I've talked to have gotten into product management because at some point in their work, they've ran into a product that was just terrible. Like they, they knew this could be so much better for their customers and they wanted to have some some input in that to make it better, right? And to be able to overcome some of the issues they see. I'm curious, even before this, maybe it, you're sitting in your dorm room, you're, you and, and colleagues here, students are putting together Lobby 7. What was it that kind of sparked that entrepreneurial mindset that led you down that path to think about doing such a thing? I think that entrepreneurial mindset was always there. It's having to chart your own path. Maybe it came mm-hmm. from the fact that, you know, I lived uh, in India till I was 12, then moved to South Africa, where, you know, it was always that I never kind of fit in. I always had to kind of chart my path. And it was mm-hmm. something similar where it was this drive to create change, but I was going to have to chart my path. And that's mm-hmm. what led to entrepreneurship. But I think what was interesting to me was the path from entrepreneurship to product management. That was really counterintuitive for me. What led me to product management was actually a role where the title was the diametric opposite of product manager. My title at the time was program manager for custom engineering. Hmm. And that is custom engineering is like the exact opposite of product management, right? And what I, and what I've since realized is that product is really a way of thinking. It kind of doesn't even matter what your title is. Each of us can be applying product thinking, whether we're founders, entrepreneurs, whether we're, you know, in marketing or whatever else, all of us really could be using product thinking. And to me, what really emerged from this is when we're building products, like we all are actually building products because product is how you create change. You figure out what's the need, what needs to be changed for a certain group of people. And whatever you're doing, that is your product to create that change. And so Mm -hmm. your title is basically irrelevant. You're building products if you're thinking about how you're going to engineer that change. And therefore, you're applying product thinking. And what we've needed until now is how do you create that change very systematically? Good. And that is indeed, I'm sure, what the focus of the book is about, this change. And you're absolutely right. The the titles don't matter. We see a variety of titles. And we're also seeing organizations move and hold towards more of a product structure and product mindset, right? We see product roles being elevated to the the, uh, C-suite, the senior suite. This is a quick break to thank you for listening and to give you 10 hard-earned recommendations that will help you advance as a product manager and be recognized as a product leader. They are based on insights I've learned after working with many product professionals like you in several organizations, helping them advance using my Rapid Product Master Experience, or the RPM Experience. 
You can apply the first recommendation in just five minutes and it will change how you think about the work you do and also increase your confidence at the same time. I shared it with a leader at Dell Computers when she asked how they can create a more innovation-oriented culture. I also used it to help a startup founder reframe their value proposition. And a marketing manager applied it when she was interviewing for a product role. Not only did she get the job, she also nearly doubled her salary in the process. All that from just the first recommendation. Now, a lot of people have already downloaded the recommendations, and I don't want you to miss out if you haven't done it yet. They're all in a PDF titled, 10 Changes Product Teams Should Make Now to Consistently Launch Products Customers Love. Easily get it by going to productmasterynow.com slash love, that's L-O-V-E, love, because the recommendations will help you better create products that customers love. Don't get passed by others that are already using the recommendations to advance their career. You deserve to advance too. Go to productmasterynow.com slash love and get the recommendations. Let's get into the connection to, to the book. I assume that your motivation for writing the book was to share this framework with others. How did that get started? I think the motivation was more because I realized that we need to change kind of how we build products. That today, you know, our mantras of product management and just how we build products in general, you know, all the way from my entrepreneurship days, what we've been taught is we have to keep iterating till we find product market fit. Just try different things and and test it in the market. If you haven't tested early enough, you're kind of too late already. You know, those that kind of a mindset. Moving from that to where I think we need to be is being more vision-driven, meaning being able to think of our product as this mechanism for creating change in the world. But that means starting with, you know, what is that change that I really want to bring about? Having a very clear picture of that and then being able to translate that into your actions. Um, and what happens, by the way, is that step of, or the set of steps for translating vision into action, whenever there's a break in that chain so that your vision uh, becomes disconnected from your actions, that is where product diseases set in. That's kind of the key to, you know, how can we build better products while avoiding product diseases is to avoid having that break in that chain all the way from vision to action. Let's walk through that chain a bit. Um, in the book, Radical Product Thinking, there's five elements that looks like the framework for this process. Vision, strategy, prioritization, execution, management, and culture. And the book obviously goes into detail on each of these. So I, I think wherever you want to dive in, but I know as product people that that vision is, and it's first in your list for a good reason too, that vision is where we need to start to have a vision for what we want to accomplish. And one thing I just appreciated about our discussion so far is the, the sense here is while this may help us across the board to innovate smarter, we're not just doing the next generation of a product, right? We're, we're looking at change that actually makes a difference to our customer, to our organization, change that is meaningful. And that needs to start with a clear vision that is different than what we are doing today. So can you just kind of dive into that for us and unravel vision a little bit and we'll connect the pieces here? Yeah. The vision is kind of the starting point where I realized we need a different approach to a vision because until now, right, we've learned that a good vision is a BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal. That's kind of the first thing that your VC asks you, like, oh, what's your BHAG? We've learned that a good vision is broad, it's the slogan, a quick 
tagline almost that people can remember, right? And what I realized is we have to unlearn all of those myths of what makes a good vision. So it turns out that a good vision actually is not short, it's not a slogan, and it doesn't have to be a BHAG. It actually should be something that's really detailed and let me, let me give, illustrate. And I often do this in talks where I ask people to give me an example of a product that fits the following vision, right? And this is the vision of a public company. It says contributing to human progress while empowering people to express themselves. Now, when you hmm. listen to that vision of contributing to human progress, right? By empowering people to express themselves. I could use this vision to describe my kid's piano teacher because she's helping my kids express themselves and it's, progress. She, this could be the vision statement of a company making post-it notes. But the point is, right, anything can fit under this vision. And which is why such a BHAG sort of a vision is not useful. You cannot hold up a feature against such a BHAG vision and have the answer sometimes be, no, we shouldn't do this. And that's what we need in a vision. It has to be one where it's a North Star, where sometimes the answer is no, don't do that. And so a good vision to me is one that answers five questions. It's the who, what, why, when, and how questions. So that's whose world are we trying to change? And it can't be everyone. Like you can't answer that with consumers or businesses, right? It has to be a very specific identifiable group. What is their problem? Meaning what does the world look like for them? What do they do today? The third question, which is probably the most important one for me, is why does that world need changing? Because honestly, maybe it doesn't need changing, and it's important to acknowledge that. Then we can say, okay, when will we know that we've arrived? Meaning, what does the world look like when you can say mission accomplished? And then finally, how are we going to bring it about? And this is finally the point where we can talk about, you know, our technology or our product. And so this sort of a who, what, why, when, how vision is the level of detail that we need to be able to actually give our teams enough direction. And so I want to illustrate this, right? In the radical product thinking way, you write this vision in a fill in the blank statement so that you're not just stuck on words. And instead, you know, you're focusing on the details of answering these profound questions. So in the radical product thinking way, here's an example of a vision statement for a startup that I had. It would go today when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines that they're likely to like. Uh, they have to find attractive looking wine bottles or pick wines that are on sale. This is unacceptable because it leads to so many disappointments and it's hard to learn about wine this way. We envision a world where finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. We're bringing about this world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your taste and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. And that is a radical vision because, you know, I hadn't said anything about my startup or what we did, but hopefully that gave you an exact sense of what we were doing and why we were doing it. And that was, that's what makes it a radical state. There's so much greatness in just this approach to vision that we need to get our hands around. And this will be really valuable to uh, listeners. So please, please jot some of this down or better yet, just go check out the notes uh, for details. I should remind you that's at productmasterynow.com slash 367. I, I love these questions so much because they encompass the key elements that we need to have in mind as a product manager right? Starting with whose world do we need to change? Often we talk about the customer 
in somewhat unclear terms with each other, especially if we're in an organization where we've gotten used to who our customer is. And that lack of specificity harms everything else that we do. So that being very clear, what their problem is, what we're trying to actually solve for them in your wine statement there of the vision, that you know it's hard to try to figure out what wine to get just based on labels or what, what's on sale, right? You spend way too much time in the wine store trying to figure this out. Why does the world need changing, right? Why is this an actual problem? Is it big enough a problem to tackle or not? And when do we know we have arrived that we've actually got this done? And then the execution part, the how to go about this. But so much goodness in just starting clearly with who we're serving and what is their problem, which is really critical. Now, as you read through your vision statement, elements of that sounded to me like you could think of it as a value proposition. And I don't know how you think about those things separately. I don't really care what we call it per se. I like the way that you put together your your vision statement. And that's, while not a tagline, it's still a very concise story to convey what is it we're about. Exactly. And you know, this is the thing. We have all these different elements like our vision statement, a mission statement, what's our value proposition. You know, I think about it as one ring to rule them all, like having one vision statement where I'm not worried about like, you know, trying to think about what's the difference between value proposition and vision and mission, etc. It's just, you know, I need one concise answer to the who, what, why, when, how statements so that I know how to think about my product. And, you know, what you were saying about how we can go about writing such a vision and answering that deep question, starting with, you know, whose world are we trying to change? It is so important. These are hard questions to answer. And so it's really, uh, you know, sometimes we may not even have answers to these questions. It may require us to go do some research, even to answer the who, what, why, when, and how questions. But asking these questions is the starting point so that we can start to frame what is it that we don't know. Sometimes that's the hardest part, like, you know, not knowing that we don't even know the answers to these. As you start to fill these out, you realize, oh, wait, I need to really define this in more detail. I don't know the answer to who are we targeting exactly. This is a very good structure to use just to get us on the same page um, as we start thinking about that, right? And, and when we unravel the interconnections between those elements, and we might find out along the way that, oh, we have a problem here we're trying to solve for the wrong audience. Actually, someone else has this problem, right? Or we don't have a way to connect with that audience. We don't have a good way to encounter them. Um, how, how can we we maybe pivot that to something that looks like a the right audience, um, but give us good direction about this without over-pivoting uh, as one of the diseases here. Okay, so this vision sets us up then for moving towards something we want to actually create, right? A a product, a service here to, to make. Where should we go next with this? What's often missing after you have a vision is a strategy. So vision needs to be converted into an actionable set of steps. And that's where the strategy comes in. So to me, strategy requires answering four questions. And the easy to remember mnemonic is radical or RDCL. So the R is for real pain points. And that means answering the question, why does someone come to your product? Like, what's the pain that makes them come to your product? Like, Why should they even engage? The D is for design, meaning what is our solution for those pain points? The C or capabilities is what is our special sauce? Maybe our technology, IP, infrastructure, or partnerships that 
that special sauce that allows us to power the solution that we thought about in design. And then finally, logistics, which is how does the solution get to your customers? And this is where we answer those hard questions such as, you know, how will you support the product? What are the sales channels? How will you train your customers? What professional services do you need? Very often when we build our product, you know, this question about logistics, right, of training, support, etc., cetera, uh, or pricing, it's all left as an afterthought. Very often we say, you know, first I'll build a product and then I'll worry about monetization or I'll build the product and then we'll think about how to support it. And the reality is, right, it's like when we build a house, you build a house knowing kind of what who is going to go live there. You don't think about how you're going to price the house kind of as an afterthought. Like if it's, you know, a two-person family, a two-person house, you're not going to price it at over a million. Like it just doesn't make sense. You don't build out such a big house. So what you build is so fundamentally tied into how you're going to sell it, how you're going to service it, etc. So the four elements RDCL really tie together your strategy and make it very comprehensive in terms of how you're going to translate your vision into, you know, what your customers need and as a result, what you're going to build. Yeah, and it helps us with that alignment between what problem are we actually solving, how are we getting that done, and what's the overall strategy uh, of not just our product here, but how does that fit into the strategy of the organization as well? And think about, are, are we aligned, which makes us more efficient, right, and going down better paths for us. So I, I like how this is just very actionable to, you know, sometimes we think about strategy as this somewhat nebulous concept of, well, what are the big trends out there, what are we doing? This is a strategy that's tied directly to the vision you just shared. And how do we start unpacking that to make it radical RDCL? Exactly. And it, you know, I mentioned avoiding the break in the chain. And by making sure that your strategy is derived exactly from your vision, that's that next step that allows each subsequent step kind of takes it to the next level of granularity without losing the information from, you know, what you had before so that you avoid that break in the chain and avoid product diseases. Can we cover one more element of your framework, which the, the next one in the book is prioritization. Just that word has meaning to product managers, so you probably need to tell us how you're using it. But th this is a big issue for a lot of us is how do we figure out of all the features, attributes that one might think customers need, how do we prioritize what they do need? Exactly. And this is one of the hardest parts for us as pro product managers. How do you prioritize things? The, in the radical product thinking way, you can use your vision in your everyday priorities, everyday decision making. And the way I do that, right, is by thinking about, okay, how do you, when you prioritize, what you're really doing is intuitively you're trading off the long term against the short term. So let's make that explicit. Think about your vision on the Y axis and your X axis then is the short term, which is survival. So if you're a startup, your survival depends on, you know, revenues or funding. Like if you run out of money, you're dead. Um, if you're in a much larger company, maybe you have enough funding. That's not what's going to kill you. But maybe it's the stakeholder support or that, you know, if your bosses disapprove of what you're doing, maybe that's what's going to kill you, uh, your product, right? And so, when you think about this X and Y axis, things that are good for your vision and that are good for your survival, those are the easy decisions. That's, of course, ideal. 
But if we always focus on just the ideal, we're still being very short-term driven. Sometimes we have to focus on investing in the vision. That's basically when it's good for the vision, but it's not helping you short-term for survival. So if you think about, you know, refactoring code uh, for three months, that's investing in the vision because it's not showing you any short-term results. The opposite of investing in the vision is when you're taking on vision debt. That's basically where it's good for survival in the short term, but it's bad for your vision. Remember we talked about obsessive sales disorder? Well, that happens when we keep accumulating vision debt. We keep doing things that are short term, like maybe it's taking on a custom feature for a customer, uh, which is not good for the vision, but hey, it's helping you win that deal. So the more vision debt we take on, we tend to move towards obsessive sales disorder. And so none of these quadrants are bad per se. The, you have to find what is the right mix in your particular organization. So when you prioritize, the way you use this is that, you know, you can use this for sprint planning. You know, take all the features on post-its and you start drawing up this X and Y axis and you say, okay, where do these features fit on these axes? And you'll take more things from the ideal quadrant Maybe you'll do one or two things from the investing in the vision quadrant, maybe more, depending on how much you can afford to invest in the vision. And then you'll try to avoid vision debt as much as possible, but recognize that maybe occasionally you have to take on vision debt and you'll think about how are you going to pay back that vision debt? You know, what will you do to invest in the vision or in the ideal quadrant to avoid accumulating that vision debt? So talking about this, about it this way does two things. One is, you know, instead of your dictating priorities to your team, it really helps you convey your intuition for decision making. And it helps your team understand how you're trading off the long term against the short term. The second thing is that this helps you also communicate to your stakeholders using the same approach, talking about the X and Y axis. And so, you know, you kept talking about alignment, Chad, and this alignment is what this helps bring about both with stakeholders and with your team, where you talk about what's the rationale, the right trade-off between the long-term and the short-term and get everyone to see the same thing so that even when you're not in that meeting, when your developer is deciding whether to take on tech debt or not, they know what's the right trade-off. When your stakeholders are thinking about decisions on whether to take on this new sales opportunity, they're thinking about it in the same way that you are. And that's the alignment that you want to bring about. So, so many more questions I could ask about that, but for sake of time, I'm going to suggest that we dig into radical product thinking and we'll tell listeners how to get the, the book soon. But, but this is a key issue for uh, so many product managers and having a vision, having that North Star clearly driving our decision making and giving us really kind of that framework now for aligning our decisions in the short term and long term helps tie together some of these pieces. And back to that vision statement that you shared, I like so much just how it, it's really a story, right? It, it's a compelling story of their, you know, this person has this problem, and this is how it's frustrating to them. And this is what we can do about it. And, you know, this is what it will look like when we're successful. And stories is a way that we communicate uh, to others and get them kind of on board with the, this vision. And so packaging it as a, that effective story is really helpful too. Okay, there's more to the framework. We, we did get to execution and measurement and culture and certainly more details about everything that we did just talk about. Certainly radical product thinking is where to go for that. Tell us the, the easiest, best place to uh, look into that and also find out more about yourself. 
Yeah, so you can look at the website, radicalproduct.com, and from the website, you can get the free toolkit. You can also learn more about radical product thinking, but you can get the book, which is on Amazon and any bookstore around you. And lastly, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I always love to hear stories of how people are applying radical product thinking to create change in the world. Excellent. Thank you for those resources. The links to those will be in the show notes for everyone. And as listeners know, we appreciate a good innovation quote. Um, I asked you to bring one. Can you share that and tell us what it means to you? Yeah, I think the one innovation quote that has really resonated with me uh, is one from Spider-Man. And it is, with great power comes great responsibility. That means a lot to me because I think what you'll see uh, as you read Radical Product Thinking or from this podcast, you know, you see that all of these tools, they give us the superpower for building successful products, for world-changing products. What we have to realize is that we affect people's lives through our products. And, you know, our role as product people is very much uh, like the role of a doctor, where we see a problem and we prescribe our product to our users because we see that problem. Doctors do something very similar. And so with that power of prescribing our product to someone comes the responsibility of their well-being and thinking about that. And in the book, I talk about digital pollution and how we often create collateral damage to society through our products. So to me, you know, one of the key things, our role as product people is yes, the superpower of building great products that are successful and wildly successful, but also the responsibility that we're creating change in the world and recognizing and embracing that responsibility. It is a responsibility. With that responsibility, we we realize in organizations, typically we don't have too much authority and we work through influence instead. And the tools you've given us, you know, starting with that vision, starting with how we can uh, tie that into a strategy, the steps to take, the actions that we need to be taking, you know, in the next sprint and thinking about the trade-offs between short-term and long-term planning, those things we talked through help us very much with that influence too, right, to, to carry this responsibility and influence others. So. Thank you so much for sharing the quote with us. Thank you also for uh, just this wonderful information. And again, uh, radicalproduct.com is the key place to go. The other links to the book and your LinkedIn profile will be in the show notes as well. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a great conversation. And for our listeners, again, you'll find those written notes of everything we have discussed and that one-page takeaway to help you put into action the key concepts we did just discuss at productmasterynow.com slash 367. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.